0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And today we focus on one of the most hotly contested constitutional questions of this Supreme Court term and of American politics, and that is the Constitution and Partisan gerrymandering. The Supreme Court heard two partisan gerrymandering cases this week, uh, Lamone and Benisek uh, from Maryland and Rucho against Common Cause coming from North Carolina. And we'll examine those cases, what the constitutional debates are, how the court might rule and what the future is for the uh, nature of American politics. And helping us to understand this crucial question are two of America's leading experts on gerrymandering and election law, as well as returning champions here on the We the People podcast. Uh, Nick Stephanopoulos is professor of law and Herbert and Marjorie Freed research scholar at the University of Chicago Law School and is a leading election law scholar. He is representing the North Carolina League of Women Voters in Rucho against Common Cause, one of the gerrymandering cases uh, argued at the court this week. Nick, thank you so much for joining. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Hans von Spakovsky is manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He was appointed to the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity in 2017 and previously served as a member of the Federal Election Commission. Hans, it's great to have you back.
1: Well, it's great to talk to you again. And and I have to say, I, I greatly admire the work you all do at your center.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Let us begin with uh, Rucho against Common Cause because, Nick, uh, you're uh, part of the case. Tell us what the facts are in North Carolina and the broad natures of the constitutional debate among the justices.
2: Uh, Sure thing. So let me me just back up and uh, and summarize uh, where the law is with respect to partisan gerrymandering. Uh, So for about 30 years, uh, the Supreme Court has recognized that severe partisan gerrymandering can violate the Constitution. Uh, This has been the case ever since the 1980s. But since 2004, uh, partisan gerrymandering has existed in a strange kind of limbo where the court continues to unanimously agree that severe gerrymandering violates the Constitution, uh, but we don't currently have an operative legal standard for distinguishing permissible districts or maps from impermissible ones. And so that means the stakes in any given partisan gerrymandering case are quite high because the litigants aren't just trying to apply an existing test to the facts at hand. Uh, They're also fighting over uh, what the right test ought to be and whether any test is actually uh, discernible and manageable. Uh, a test that captures the the constitutional injury and is uh, workable by uh, by courts. Um, So what's really interesting in the last few years is that while the Supreme Court has yet to fully reengage with the substantive issues here, uh, the lower courts have made really dramatic progress toward uh, identifying a workable legal standard. Uh, So in Wisconsin, In North Carolina, this is the the case where Ruscio comes from. In Michigan, uh, in Ohio, we have lower courts converging on exactly the same legal standard, uh, which requires uh, discriminatory intent, uh, a large and durable discriminatory effect, and an absence of any legitimate justification for this effect. So it can't be the result of a state's political geography, or the state's effort to comply with uh, nonpartisan legitimate districting goals. Uh, and so the, the key thing to emphasize about this test is how limited it is. Uh, it would only strike down a limited number of districts in a very limited number of maps. Uh, and so you know, that means that it would not require the courts to be striking down districts and maps uh, uh, all over the place, it would only target the worst of the worst, um, which include the, uh, the particular districts in the particular maps that are being challenged in these cases. Um, but that would not include the vast majority of congressional and state legislative maps around the country. Uh, almost all of those maps uh, either were not drawn with the right intent uh, or have not exhibited a large and durable discriminatory effect. Uh, Or even if they have, uh, that effect is exactly what you would expect given the political geography of those states. So, you know, with with this narrow limited test, we're looking at uh, limited judicial intervention uh, in a handful of of states to um, strike down some of the most offensive gerrymanders uh, of the last half century.
0: Thank you very much for that uh, helpful introduction to the state of the law. Hans, what is your uh, response about the state of the law? And tell us what you think about the constitutional merits of the test that Nick described that the district courts have been applying and whether you think it's correct to apply that test in North Carolina and Maryland. Uh,
1: No, I don't think it's correct. But I think uh, because redistricting is often a confusing area, it's important for folks to understand that – Look, redistricting is, under the Constitution, uh, a state legislative function. It's under the supervision of of Congress. Um, And the courts really have, the Supreme Court really has only recognized two kinds of causes of action in the past uh, against redistricting plans. Um, You can sue under the Voting Rights Act if you believe that uh, districts were drawn with a discriminatory intent in order to discriminate, for example, against black voters and them being able to uh, uh, to, to vote and choose their candidate of choice. Uh, the other uh, big rule that the Supreme Court came up with out of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in, the 19, in a series of cases in the 1960s uh, is saying that um, legislative districts have to be as equal as possible, you know, the one person, one vote standard. Um, that's particularly true with congressional districts, uh, which the Supreme Court has said, uh, the, the, the populations, I mean, they can't vary by many votes at all. They give a little more leeway to state legislative districts because they know that states, uh, usually in their constitutions and their s- statutory provisions, you know, put in certain parameters like trying to keep county counties and cities and th- things like that together. But those really have been the only two full causes of action that the Supreme Court has recognized. And even that, those have generated large numbers of re- redistricting cases going to the Supreme Court. Um, the last time the court really looked at this substantively was in the Viath case. That's a case out of Pennsylvania in 2004. And there, um, uh, Democrats went to court and said, well, we should get more of the congressional seats in Pennsylvania, uh, because we got a greater percentage of the vote in the presidential election. Uh, the court rejected the claim and you, what you, what what you generally had was, you know, for the conservative justices saying, look, this is a political question. Uh, this is up to the legislatures to decide and the courts should not be in this. Plus there aren't any manageable judicial standards that could be used uh, to make a determination here. Uh, The liberal justices pretty much indicated they thought this was a violation of the Constitution, and the one person in the middle was uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, probably no surprise. He agreed with the conservative justices in that particular case, but he left open the idea that a cause of action um, claiming that partisan redistricting is a violation of the Constitution that he might consider it in the future if someone could come up with some judicially manageable standards. And of course, that's been the holy grail of many lawyers in the redistricting area. Uh, What I would say about that is, I I don't think there is any standard that you can come up with. I don't think there is a holy grail because uh, look, even the plaintiffs in both these cases admit that uh, you can't cut all politics out of redistricting. Politics is inherent in the redistricting process. So what they're looking for here is what I would call, although I don't think I've trademarked it, the Goldilocks principle, which is they're saying, well, some politics is okay, but too much politics is not okay and is a violation of the constitution. Uh, It has to be somewhere in between. And expecting the courts to come up with this nebulous line somewhere in the redistricting process where, uh, at some point, um, if you engage in too much partisan line drawing, you're going to start to have a constitutional violation, I think, is, is basically impossible.
0: So the question is squarely joined. What's exciting about the North Carolina case is it squarely poses the question you've both been debating. Uh, is there a judicially manageable standard for identifying when partisan gerrymandering goes too far? And is it okay explicitly to try to say that you want to help your party when you're drawing election maps? In North Carolina, uh, one of the legislators who drew the map said, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. So I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. And the plan worked. In 2016, Republican congressional candidates won 53% of the statewide vote but they won uh, 77% of the seats. That's 10 out of the 13 congressional districts. And the same uh, thing happened in 2018 where the statewide vote is evenly divided, but Democrats get only three seats. Nick, tell us more about the gerrymander in North Carolina in Rucho. Why is it of the small category of extreme cases that you think violate the Constitution? And how did the test that you identified earlier that the lower courts apply convince the lower courts in North Carolina to strike down that gerrymandering? And is that uh, the right test?
2: Uh, Sure. So you already mentioned some of the evidence that persuaded the the lower court. Uh, So recall that the the first prong of the the legal analysis is uh, whether there was discriminatory intent, uh, whether particular districts uh, were drawn with the goal of benefiting uh, the line drawing party uh, and disadvantaging the other side. Uh, and in this case, we don't have to hunt for the motives of the legislators. Uh, they were nice enough to put down their motives on paper, uh, to actually ratify, uh, an explicit criterion called partisan advantage that, uh, declared outright that North Carolina's congressional delegation would have 10 Republicans and three Democrats under the new plan. Uh, so in this case, it's trivially easy to, uh, to find the requisite intent Uh, on effect. Not only do we have the, uh, the election outcomes that you mentioned, uh, an evenly divided electorate and, uh, Republicans winning exactly the 10 seats they thought they would win and Democrats being consigned to exactly the three seats that, uh, the map makers thought they would win. Uh, We also have extensive expert analysis. Uh, showing that uh, North Carolina's current map is the single most asymmetric or unbalanced map uh, for Congress of the last 50 years. So we're not dealing with a garden-variety bias, the kind of bias we see all the time. Uh, this is a truly record-breaking map uh, in the extremity of its, uh, of its bias. Uh, we also had evidence about the durability of the bias, that uh, even if the voters of North Carolina wanted to you know, vote the bums out, you know, even if they shifted dramatically in a Democratic direction, uh, it wouldn't matter. Uh, the map would continue to benefit Republicans. Uh, and we saw that in the 2018 election, uh, it was a massive Democratic wave election. Uh, Democratic Democrats swept every single statewide race in North Carolina. Uh, and yet they still won just those same three seats, you know, the three seats that were, uh, packed full of Democrats, uh, by the line drawers. Uh, and then when it comes to whether there's any neutral justification for all of this, uh, the best way to answer that question is to use a computer and just simulate hundreds and thousands of uh, of maps that don't consider partisanship, but that do attain every single nonpartisan goal of the legislature. And when you apply that technique to North Carolina, what you find out is that you never get a 10-3 map. You never get a 9-4 map. Uh, You typically get a map with six or seven or eight uh, Republican districts and seven or six uh, uh, or five Democratic districts. Uh, So it's a great way to confirm that the bias we're observing in North Carolina is utterly unrelated to the political geography of the state. And it's entirely attributable to the deliberate advantaging of of, uh, Republicans um, and the handicapping of uh, of Democrats. Um, let me just add a couple of quick points too that, that relate to some of Hans's earlier comments. Um, it's true that there's a line drawing issue here, and it's also true that there are line drawing issues in every redistricting cause of action. Uh, with one person, one vote, which uh, Hans alluded to, uh, courts had to distinguish between an acceptable level of population deviation and an unacceptable level of population deviation. Uh, And it took the courts a few years, but they figured out a way to do that. Uh, In Voting Rights Act cases, which Hans mentioned, uh, courts have to distinguish between uh, an OK level of racial polarization in voting and a not OK level, and courts can do that. Uh, And Courts also have to distinguish between an OK level of district compactness and a not OK level. And again, courts are able to do it. Uh, So there's really no difference between partisan gerrymandering cases and all other cases uh, involving redistricting, um, which also have their own share of line drawing issues. Um, The last quick point is about how to fix it. It's true that there are other reforms available here beyond litigation. The trouble is the same people who are uh, the defendants in these cases and who are opposing judicial intervention also argue that all the reforms, the other uh, routes, uh, are unconstitutional themselves. Uh, you know, that was Paul Clement's position yesterday, that uh, courts shouldn't intervene. But if states want to adopt redistricting commissions, well, that's not OK. That violates the Constitution. If state courts want to intervene, well, that could also violate the Constitution. And if Congress wants to do something, you know, if Congress wants to pass a bill like H.R. 1 that would uh, require uh, commissions to be used across the country, well, hey, that's unconstitutional too. Um, so it's not the case that uh, the folks on the other side uh, are just asking for reforms outside the judicial process. Um, they're really asking for no reforms at all. You know, they're asking for the the status quo of extreme unfettered gerrymandering that corrodes the basic values of democracy just to continue as far as the eye can see. And I think that's not really a tenable position.
0: Um, Hans, as Nick suggests, at the oral argument... The liberal justices rejected the claim that the framers put drawing electoral lines in the hands of the political branches and didn't intend a role for the judiciary. Uh, Justice Sotomayor said that ship has sailed, and Justice Ginsburg said the court became involved decades ago when it got into the one man, one vote cases. Uh, So I want to focus on this question of a judicially manageable standard. And Nick says that there is one, and the lower courts have been applying it, and it clearly forbids the North Carolina gerrymander. Tell us why you disagree with that position and why you think that evidence of clear discriminatory intent and effect and the lack of legitimate justifications um, is not judicially administrable. And then also give us a sense of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, response. Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy, who had seemed open to partisan gerrymandering cases, but as you said, didn't find a standard that he agreed with. What was Justice Kavanaugh's response to the claim that the North Carolina uh, r- r- gerrymander might be unconstitutional?
1: Well, well, I have to say on, on uh, Justice Sotomayor's remark that that was a little short-sighted. Um, the courts have gotten involved in redistricting, but they've gotten involved because discriminating on the basis of race is uh, uh, violates both the Constitution and federal law. So of course courts uh, can get involved in that situation and they, w- with regard to uh, e- e- having to have equal populations and districts. Again, the courts got involved because they said uh, having very uneven districts um, uh, violates the constitution. Uh, it is not a violation of the law to engage in politics. And that's what this case is all about. A- as to the standard, uh, how in the world can you come up with a standard? Because uh, what what the what the plaintiffs in all these cases are basically saying is that the Constitution guarantees proportionality to political parties. Sorry, but that is not in the Constitution. The Constitution does guarantee that uh, individual Americans have the right to have representation and to choose uh, what candidate is going to represent them but the political parties don't have a right uh, under the constitution to a proportional share of state legislatures. And how in the world are you going to uh, determine that? Basically, the plaintiff's view is that uh, voters are monolithic uh, in their choices. You know, those who choose the Democratic party, those who choose the Republican party. American voters split their votes all the time. I mean, if you want an, a great example of that, um, uh, take a look at Wisconsin. You know, Wisconsin had a case like this, uh, the Gill case, that was up before the Supreme Court um, uh, last term. The 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 justices didn't make a substantive decision there. They actually sent it back down because they said that the plaintiffs hadn't established standing. But but there again, uh, there's a, there's at least 18, for example, state legislative seats in Wisconsin where the voters voted in, a majority of the voters voted in a Republican state legislature to represent them, yet when it came to the statewide race for U.S. Senator, a majority of them voted for Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin. Uh, You have states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, In 2012, Michigan and Pennsylvania went for Obama. In 2016, they went for Trump. The point is, is that in the in a, any 10 year period after a census, um, if you take a look at the elections in various states, you will see that uh, the number of votes that um, Republican candidates, uh, Democratic candidates, and potentially Libertarian and Green Party candidates get varies from race to race and varies from candidate to candidate. So how in the world are you supposed to figure out when you have a differing amount amount of votes going to different statewide candidates of different parties from election to election, how are you supposed to figure out, well, what proportion of the state legislature or what proportion of the congressional seats is a particular party uh, going to get? Uh, There is no standard for this that's manageable and it just is not a violation of the constitution to engage in politics. We may not like the kind of gerrymandering that goes on, but it's been going on since uh, the beginning of the country. Uh, Paul Clement in the arguments yesterday mentioned the fact that uh, James Madison got very angry over the fact that Patrick Henry tried to gerrymander him, uh, and did they uh, go to the courts to try to resolve this? No. They said this was a political issue that should be resolved through The political process.
0: Nick, tell us about Justice Kavanaugh's uh, questions during oral argument and whether you think he might be open to adopting uh, a judicial standard for regulating gerrymandering. Justice Kavanaugh asked, uh, why can't the Equal Protection Clause be be interpreted to require something resembling proportional representation? He asked Paul Clement in North Carolina, isn't proportional representation a judicially manageable standard. And then in a much noted exchange, he said uh, that uh, the amicus groups argue that extreme partisan gerrymandering is a real problem for democracy. I'm not going to dispute that. But then he noted that there's a fair amount of activity going on in the states on redistricting and attention in Congress and state Supreme Courts. Have we reached the moment Uh, even though it would be a big lift for the court to get involved where the other actors can't do it. Parsing all that, what do you think about Justice Kavanaugh's possible receptivity to a judicially manageable standard for regulating racial gerrymandering?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think Justice Kavanaugh uh, appeared to be um, grappling in good faith with the difficult issues that are presented in the case. Uh, He didn't seem to to have his mind made up. I will say I, I wasn't particularly, uh, uh, encouraged by his questions about whether, uh, the constitution requires proportional representation. Uh, this is an area where I think I agree with Hans 100% that, uh, the constitution uh, does not require proportional representation, uh, and proportionality should not be the baseline that we're using to, uh, analyze partisan gerrymandering claims. Uh, and you know that's that's true both for reasons of precedent um so judge justice kavanaugh eventually uh noted that uh earlier court cases have precluded uh proportionality as the baseline Um, but it's also true for deeper reasons which is that uh, in a single member district system like ours uh, you shouldn't expect proportional representation from elections Um, you shouldn't even want proportional representation uh there's a, a classic feature of single member districts called the winner's bonus, which is that the majority party in a state uh, typically wins an even larger majority of seats. Uh, and that's the case in maps that are designed uh, by neutral actors just as much as it is in uh, maps designed by bipartisan actors. Uh, so I don't, I don't make much of Justice Kavanaugh's references to proportionality. Uh, I think everyone here agrees proportionality is not the right baseline. Um, it's worth noting there that uh, none of the tools or metrics that the plaintiffs are offering here uh, are in any way based on the concept of proportionality. Uh, so if you take the uh, the computer generation of random uh, maps, uh, which I think is the most promising tool in this litigation, uh, that has nothing to do with proportionality. You know, if you're comparing the enacted plan to thousands of randomly generated maps from a computer, uh, proportionality has nothing to do with it. The simulated maps might be proportional, they might be disproportional, we just don't care. The question is how different is the enacted plan from the uh, the suite of simulated maps? Uh, and that's just completely unrelated to the question of proportional representation. Um, with respect to Justice Kavanaugh's comment, uh, and this was also brought up by uh, Justice Gorsuch repeatedly, uh, that other actors are involved in redistricting reform. Um, uh, that's true, and it's really encouraging. And uh, it means that there's a much reduced need for judicial intervention in those states. So, in states where there is a commission uh, or voters have uh, uh, just voted to adopt one, uh, we're not going to see partisan gerrymandering claims in those states. You know, what are the odds that an independent redistricting commission? Is going to engage in partisan gerrymandering. I think they're nil. Uh, and so any lawsuit in those jurisdictions wouldn't get off the ground. Uh, um, but uh, in more than half of the states, voter initiatives aren't available. Uh, in way more than half of the states, uh commissions do not currently exist, and uh politicians are drawing their own districts. Um so all of this activity is well and good but it doesn't solve the problem of what to do when states that don't have commissions aren't about to get commissions, uh, but have engaged in extreme durable gerrymandering. Um, so I think the court should be extremely reluctant to do anything uh, if a challenge is brought in a state where there has been reform, uh, but that shouldn't stop the court from getting involved uh, in other states like North Carolina, like Wisconsin, uh, where there hasn't been reform, and uh, where the judiciary is the only route available uh, if gerrymandering is going to be uh, curbed.
0: Hans, on this question of whether there are alternatives to judicial intervention, uh, Nick argues that in cases where there are independent commissions, uh, there's no need for regulation of gerrymandering. And yet, in 2015, uh, four of the conservative justices voted to overturn Arizona's independent redistricting commission. They called it an infringement on the power of state legislatures to draw congressional maps. And it was only Justice Kennedy's decision to vote with liberal justices that preserved that commission. Do you believe that independent commissions created by initiative like that in Arizona are or are not constitutional? And uh, do you think that their availability should be a factor in persuading the courts not to intervene in cases that have them?
1: Uh, I actually agree with the four conservative justices. It's not that independent commissions are unconstitutional. the The issue in that case was how they are created. The, if you look at the constitutional provisions on this, the power to determine boundary lines and district lines, congressional district lines are granted to state legislatures. If a state legislature wants to uh, pass a law, that delegates its authority to an independent commission, uh, or if they, if the state uh, uh, legislature and the states that do this uh, pass a referendum that they, can then be voted on by uh, individual voters, that is perfectly constitutional. The state legislature can delegate its power to an independent commission to do the line drawing in that state. the The issue in the Arizona case, as you know, Jeff, was that it wasn't the state legislature that delegated the power. Uh, there was independently a referendum put on the uh, on the ballot, and a majority of the voters voted to establish an independent commission and take this power away from uh, uh, the state legislature. I, I think the liberal justices and Justice Kennedy got that wrong when they said, "Well." In essence, the people or the state are the same as the state legislature. I mean, that—that's—that was the bottom line of of their opinion. I think that was uh, that was incorrect. But look, what I'm hearing from Nick, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but what I'm hearing from him is that um, that he wants the courts to step in because he can't get a legislative solution in certain states that, for example, don't have a referendum process because he doesn't, because he believes that independent commissions are the best way to handle this. And some states aren't doing that. Well, we should go to the courts, have them recognize, uh, partisan redistricting as a constitutional violation and force them to do it. I I don't, I think that is not the way to go. I think that's anti-democratic. I think it's up to the states to decide. And yeah, it may be true that, um, in, in a, a very gerrymandered state, it's more difficult to vote out of office, for example, state legislators you don't like uh, because of the way they draw lines. but these independent uh, commissions which are which are pointed out as as being so the the so-called wonderful solution uh, if if voters don't like the kind of maps that those commissions draw up, they can't vote the commission members out of districts and Depending on how they are set up, you know, the political parties, uh, the major political parties, get to pick, uh, and members of the legislature, usually it's the speakers, the majority party, et cetera, they get to pick who the commission members are. And what I think happens with some of these commissions is you're moving the politics that exists in the state legislature uh, behind closed doors with commissions. So. Are they the ideal solution? No. I, the, the one other thing I wanted to mention was, th- look, this is not a partisan issue. You know, we've only talked about the North Carolina case. In the North Carolina case, it was the Democratic Party challenging the way that the legislature drafted, uh, the Republican legislature drafted up districts. We should mention that the second case uh, that was before the court uh, in the oral arguments on Tuesday was the Maryland case, which which you mentioned. And in that case, it was actually Republican uh, voters who went to court um, claiming that the sixth congressional district, which was really the sole Republican uh, congressional district, had been uh, redrawn by the democratically controlled state legislature to move in Democratic voters, so it it quit being a Republican district and turned into a Democratic district.
0: We'll turn to the Maryland case in a second, but one last beat on independent commissions, uh, Nick. Uh How big a deal would it be if Justice Kavanaugh were to join the other conservative justices in striking down independent commissions for the reasons that Hans advocated? Would that be a kind of one-two punch that would make relief from gerrymandering impossible either from the courts or from independent commissions? And how big a deal would it be?
2: Uh, It would be a very big deal and it would be uh, an awful one-two punch for those who care about the, the state of American democracy right now. Ah, uh, first, just backing up a little bit from the the particular debates here. Um, it's worth noting that you know every other country in the world that is a, a Western democracy that uses single-member districts. You know, our electoral system uh, uses commissions. Um, that's true in Canada. It's true in Britain. It's true in Australia. Uh, we are the only country left that's a democracy in the Western world uh, that allows politicians to draw their own districts. Um, all of our peers used to do that. And all of them, one by one, realize that's not a tenable uh, long-term policy. Uh, and so a lot of American states have followed the lead uh, of these countries, uh, but many of them haven't. Uh, and in the in the states that haven't, and in the country as a whole, uh, we are now the laggards of Western democracy, You know, the only folks that uh, don't use the modern approach to districting, which is independent uh, commissions. Um, second point on commissions is that you know Hans is right that uh, nothing in the Arizona dissenters' uh, uh, views would stop a, legislator, a legislature itself from choosing to create an independent commission. Uh, the trouble, of course, is that the last people on the entire planet Earth that wanna create an independent redistricting commission are the gerrymanders, the ones who currently have the authority design district lines that favor them and their party. Uh, And that's why we see that legislatures almost never voluntarily give up this power. They guard that power. They cherish that power. The last thing they want to do is give it to anybody else. Uh, And so that's why the the process that Hans mentions uh, really isn't any process at all. Uh, You have to circumvent the self-interested legislators if you're going to get reform. Uh, You can't trust the Fox itself to uh, stay out of the hen house. That's the last thing the Fox wants to do. Um, Final point on commissions is that, uh, you know, I agree with Hans. They're not perfect. Uh, They're not, you know, saintly, nonpartisan bodies. Uh, But what they are, first of all, is bipartisan, not partisan. You know, they balance partisanship against each other. Uh, They have equal numbers of Democrats or Republicans. And so no one ever alleges that uh, commissions engage in partisan gerrymandering uh, because unlike legislatures, their composition prevents them from doing that. Uh, and the other point is, yeah, you know, we, we have a lot of data and evidence about how commissions perform uh, as opposed to legislators. And this evidence is pretty unambiguous that commissions are better. Maybe you care about competitiveness. Well, you get more competitive districts, more responsive districts with commissions. Uh, Maybe you care about the partisan skew of district maps, uh, which is the the concept at issue in the partisan gerrymandering cases. Well, as you might predict, uh, commissions systematically produce less skewed, less biased maps than legislators. Um, And the reason is obvious. They're not trying to benefit one side or the other. And so they don't uh, to the same extent as politicians. Uh, And so I think if the court were to uh, both say the courts will not intervene to strike down outliers, uh, and if the courts were to take commissions off the table, uh, you know, that really is the council of despair. Uh, That really is uh, looking at the state of American democracy and the state of redistricting, which is awful, and saying, let's cut off every single avenue that would actually improve the terrible status quo and that would actually make representation better for Americans, and saying we'll have none of that. Um, So it would be a a real gut punch for American democracy.
0: Well, let us turn to the Maryland case. Hans, as you said, it's an extreme gerrymander of Democrats against Republicans. uh, So extreme that as Justice Kagan noted, it was excessive by any measure. Uh, Republicans will never win the seat again, thanks to the Democratic gerrymander, and they now have only one member of Maryland's eight-member congressional delegation, as Justice Kagan emphasized, even though they make up 35 percent of the population. What was striking about this case is that it rested on a First Amendment theory. The plaintiffs argued that the First Amendment is violated when the state retaliates against Republicans for their political affiliation and lower courts adopted a three-part test for identifying First Amendment political retaliation, uh, which was based on intent, injury, and causation. So tell us about that First Amendment test. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts did seem more sympathetic uh, to it than he did to the uh, equal protection claim. He said it does seem, he told the lawyer, that like the state is retaliating against Republicans, what's wrong with with that argument? Do you think that Roberts' question was significant? And what do you think of the First Amendment theory?
1: Look, what, what I would what I would say about the Maryland case is, that, look, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the Republican uh, voters there. But again, uh, I don't think there's a constitutional violation. And I don't think there's a violation of the First Amendment. I, I, I don't give any credibility to the test that the lower court uh, came up with in that case. And the reason being that, um, look, the First of all, the political speech ability of voters uh, has not been infringed. No one is preventing them from speaking out, uh, speaking out against the uh, congressional representatives that are elected there or elsewhere. Uh, I don't believe their associational rights uh, have been violated uh, either because uh, they can certainly associate with the Republican party, you know, work with the Republican party, do do grassroots activities with the Republican party, help Republican candidates, uh, but again, go, going back to what I was talking about before, um, the Constitution doesn't guarantee the, re- the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or any other political party representation in Congress. And the individual rights that are protected by the Constitution have not been infringed uh, by the fact that the state legislature has engaged in uh, partisan gerrymandering. That doesn't mean I like it or that I think it's a wise policy, but it's not a constitutional violation. And I just have to say, uh, in reference to Nick saying, well, you know, the whole rest of the world has put in commissions. Well, if we go by that, then he must agree that we ought to put in um, nationwide uh, voter ID laws since we're one of the only Western democracies that doesn't do that. And he obviously must believe we should get rid of birthright citizenship because we're also one of the few countries in the world that recognizes birthright citizenship. I I don't mean to joke about that, but that is just not, that is not a way to judge whether what we're doing in our uh, republic uh, is, is constitutional or the right thing to do.
0: Nick, what do you think about the First Amendment theory in the Maryland case? Tell us more about it. What is this three-part test? How significant is it that it's rooted in the First Amendment rather than the Equal Protection Clause? Do you think it's persuasive? And how significant is it that Chief Justice Roberts uh, seemed uh, possibly sympathetic to it?
2: Uh, I, I think the the court may be interested uh, in a First Amendment mode of intervention here, just because this is a, a very uh, First Amendment-friendly court. Uh, that is accustomed to uh, intervening on the basis of the First Amendment. Uh, and so this may be a more natural, more intuitive route for the court than uh, intervention on the basis of the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, I'll note that um, a couple of things about the, the First Amendment. Uh, one is that uh, even if there is no direct interference with people's uh, speech, you can still have a classic First Amendment violation if the government is uh, punishing people or trying to harm people because of their political viewpoints. Uh, the retaliation, the punishment, doesn't have to take the form of a burden on speech. It can take any form uh, and still violate the First Amendment uh, as long as that action is being taken on the basis of people's political views. Uh, and that's what we have here. You know, When the government is... Uh, diluting the representation of certain voters, uh, trying to prevent them from electing their preferred candidates because of what they think about politics, uh, that seems like a classic First Amendment problem. Uh, second thing I'll say is that uh, on the right to association, which is a, a separate First Amendment right, uh, Justice Kagan spent a lot of her concurrence last year in the Gill case discussing the right to association, Uh, And it turns out that uh, if you look at this both qualitatively and and empirically, uh, gerrymandering really does burden a whole set of associational rights uh, that party members and party officials uh, uh, possess. Um, I've done some work on this, academic work on this, and uh, I found that when a party is the victim of gerrymandering, uh, its candidates are less able to raise money Uh, The party is less able to find candidates to run for office. Uh, The candidates the party does find tend to be less qualified to run. Uh, And the party's appeal to uh, the electorate, in particular to independent voters, uh, goes down. Uh, And so it turns out that even if gerrymandering doesn't directly force anyone to associate or not to associate, uh, it does predictably have these negative associational consequences, which the courts absolutely can uh, can recognize and can use uh, as a, a rationale for applying uh, a heightened level of scrutiny to, uh, to a district
0: map. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this rich, illuminating and constitutionally edifying debate. And the first word is to you. Nick, tell us why you think the Constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering, both the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, and what standard the justices should adopt to regulate it.
2: Uh, Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, So part of what makes this area of of partisan gerrymandering so interesting uh, is that because it's legally unsettled, uh, it makes us think about first principles of judicial intervention. Uh, When should courts be involved in deciding cases and, and Should courts stay out of it and let the political process just run uh, as it would on its own? And uh, in my view, the most persuasive account for when courts uh, should and shouldn't uh, act uh, is what's known as the political process theory, which says that uh, when there's a malfunction in a political process, the case for judicial intervention is at its very peak. Uh, In that case, when the courts step in, they're being pro-democratic. Uh, through their intervention. They're fixing the malfunction in the political process that politicians and legislators uh, can't or won't fix themselves. Uh, On the other hand, when there is no malfunction in the political process, political process theory, in my view, is that uh, courts should stay out of it. Uh, If there isn't an actual problem in how politics is working, then we don't need courts to, to step in. Uh, And so I think partisan gerrymandering is the quintessential democratic malfunction that cries out for judicial intervention. Uh, We have a huge problem. There's also nothing the voters themselves can do about it. Uh, They can't force the legislature to adopt a commission and the legislature won't adopt a commission when it's benefiting from gerrymandering. Uh, And so with this sort of uh, entrenched, uh, durable, Malfunction. Uh, this is where we need courts because there's no other body that can actually fix the democratic problem and get representation and get democracy to be working the way they ought to. Uh, for more than a hundred years, American democracy had featured unbelievable levels of malapportionment of uh, unequal district population. Uh, the people couldn't do anything about it because the legislators who were elected from the malapportioned districts loved the malapportionment, and were unwilling to do anything to change it. And so the courts in the 1960s stepped in, announced the one-person, one-vote principle, uh, forced districts to have about the same population, uh, and thereby brought an end to the democratic malfunction of malapportionment. So we have a really clear precedent for the courts doing exactly what reformers are arguing that the courts should now do with partisan gerrymandering. Uh, That precedent was 50 years ago, and it's uh, considered by most people to be one of the court's finest hours. And so my hope would be that the court would uh, again show the courage that uh, its predecessor had uh, half a century ago.
0: Hans, last word is to you. Why do you believe that the Constitution does not prohibit partisan gerrymandering, and why should the court stay out of it?
1: Well, to, to uh, quote Justice Felix Frankfurter, who once talked about the political thicket of the redistricting and other processes, um, uh, this is just simply not a violation of the Constitution. This is something that uh, state legislatures and the voters of states can try to fix through uh, all kinds of changes, anything from convincing state legislatures uh, to put in an independent commission in the states that have referendums putting it, uh, putting it in themselves or changing the parameters that govern how uh, how district lines are, are drawn up. Um, you don't want the courts to step in just because individuals who want to change this can't convince the state legislatures to do what they want. That, that, that to me is an anti-democratic process. Uh, you're basically trying to use the courts to substitute for the democratic process too. Um, Partisan redistricting is something that we have had uh, in this country since 1812, when the when the first uh, district was drawn. I think it was a state uh, a state seat in Massachusetts by uh, Governor Eldridge Gerry, who gave his name to it. Um, and having the court step into this would be, as uh, Justice Alito said in a case, another redistricting case, Cooper v. Harris, about two years ago, that um, This would give the losers in the political arena uh, the ability to go into court and try to get through the judicial system uh, what they were unable to get in the political system.
0: Thank you so much, Hans von Spakovsky and Nick Stephanopoulos for an enlightening, rich, and constitutionally edifying debate about the future of partisan gerrymandering and the constitution. Hans, Nick, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who is hungry for lifelong constitutional learning and enlightenment. And remember, always dear We the People friends, when you wake and when you sleep, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from around the country who, like you, are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. You can support our crucially important mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or please consider giving a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. And if you've just donated a small amount to signal your support for the center and for the mission for the first time, drop me an email and let me know that you've done it and tell me why, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.